Good morning, everyone. Y'all must have uh, missed the memo that Chris was out of town, so you're, you're stuck with me today. Uh, my name is Blake Dozier. I'm the associate minister here, and I am always so excited to get to share a message with you. I'm going to start out my lesson this morning with a list. Lita Dozier, Kay Payne, Kayla Dozier, Betty Folks, Christine Elrod, Lisa Folks, and Brianna Dozier. Might be a misuse of the pulpit to speak these names because they're very specific to me. But without these women who embrace the biblical calling of motherhood, I can confidently tell you that I would not stand here before you today. So if the next 25 minutes doesn't go well, you know who to blame. <clears throat> Who's on your list? Take a moment to think of them. Those in your life who hold a large part of the responsibility for where you are today, and each of them probably having held the power to make it turn out very differently. You know, today, on a day when we give special attention to our mothers, we're going to talk about the biblical call of motherhood. Many of you have embraced this calling, and to you we want to speak special honor and thanksgiving. Some of you are struggling, and to you we hope to lift you up and encourage you. And some of you need to redirect and to you, I pray that you will have a fire lit. A sermon like today's is easily riddled with disclaimers and apologies, so I'm going to do my best to place them all at the beginning. For some, today is painful for a variety of reasons. Perhaps you had a terrible mother. Perhaps you struggle as a mother yourself. Perhaps you have lost a mother or lost a child, and today hurts. Perhaps you have desired to be called to motherhood, but you have not. It's my prayer that in each of these situations, and the many more that are probably here this morning, that you will find a special grace from God today and that your heart will stay open to hear the message. I do believe God has a special measure of grace for you, and I believe God has a special purpose in working through our pain and disappointment. I believe that he even works through our brokenness, but today's sermon isn't about this. Today's sermon has application first to those who have already raised children, then for those who are smack dab in the middle of raising children, and finally, secondarily, for all of us. The biblical call to motherhood is a learned behavior that doesn't come naturally. It is countercultural, but it represents a uniquely powerful opportunity to glorify God in this dark world through selfless love and internal purity and a commitment to the biblical model of marriage. Our key text is going to be Titus 2, 3 through 5. So I hope you'll all take a second and turn there. Uh, I've got to be honest with you, this verse is a remarkably culturally insensitive verse. But as a believer who places God's word as ultimate authority, and as a son who was raised in a home where this teaching was embraced, I can tell you that our culture is wrong. Titus 2, 3 through 5 might be seen by many as repressive and outdated, but it is not. It sketches out one of the most foundational and important callings given to a human, the call to motherhood. This verse is not prescriptive of all women. Paul elsewhere applauds and supports singleness as a special spiritual gift. This verse also assumes equality and collective submission to Christ is already understood. Titus would have known that women weren't lesser than men and that all of their relationships were to be governed by the selfless love of Christ. 
And so with that foundation in place, Paul lays out this beautiful, life-giving, biblical picture of motherhood. And so I want to read it together today. Titus 2, 3 through 5. It says this. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I said it earlier, the biblical call to motherhood is a learned behavior. It doesn't come naturally. It is countercultural, but it presents a powerful opportunity to glorify God through selfless love, internal purity, and a commitment to the biblical model of marriage. I remember when I was in eighth grade, I went to a symphony in San Angelo with a friend. And to be honest, it was terribly long and terribly boring. But I remember being blown away by the violin players who were kind of up at the front. Um, and it was absolutely beautiful to watch and beautiful li to listen to, and I was mesmerized. And so in those days, eBay had kind of become a thing. I think we could still do eBay, but most people don't. So I got home, and I used the dial-up internet to find me my very own violin on eBay. And I had it shipped right to our house. And I remember when it arrived, I was pretty excited. And then I got a little discouraged because I think it took me like an hour to figure out how, put, how to put strings on the thing. <clears throat> and I, I really didn't have very high expectations. I knew that I wasn't going to be good just starting out. But I expected to be able to make a sound. I pulled the bow across the strings, and it didn't do anything. Like, it wasn't even a bad sound. It was no sound, zero. Zero sound from the violin. And so I messed with it and messed with it for maybe an hour or two. I came back to it the next day, and I think I finally made some awful sounds. And then I finally just put it away in the closet up where it was out of sight and out of mind. And, and I look back on that and think, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no one to train me. I had no self-discipline to learn. The first thing I notice about our passage is this. A mother isn't born naturally inclined to be what she's called to be. Not any more than a pimply eighth grade boy is meant to play the violin. The characteristics spoken of in this passage are taught and trained. The text says they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. It tells me two things. If your days of active mothering are over, your work isn't finished. Each generation trains the next, and the chain cannot be undone. But it also tells me this. You may not be very good at these things at first. Paul didn't expect the young women to be good wives and mothers because it was in their DNA. In fact, many elements of being a good wife and a mother are not in your DNA. I think there sometimes are certain things we just assume will fall into place. And so when an expecting mother is nervous, we console her. What do we say? We say, well, we console her with the fact that she has a natural affinity for mothering and she shouldn't worry. And when the baby shows up, everything's going to fall in place. And, and on some degree, that's true. Um, we share some similarities with the animals. There are some things that just click and just happen when a baby shows up. But the biblical call to motherhood, I don't think that comes naturally. It needs to be taught. So what is it that you're supposed to learn? The text says biblical love, internal purity, a strong work ethic, and a right relationship with your husband. And what is the result? Well, God is glorified. And so we're going to look at each of these in turn. The first pairing the text presents is loving your husband and children. 
This would seem a pretty obvious one, but I would argue it's the most radical and most foundational item on the list. And at this one, most of our mothers would would definitely uh, stand up and agree with me. They would say, have you seen my children and seen my husband and how hard it is to love them? Um, You thought you loved that man till you married him and realized how much work he was going to be to put up with, right? Or that emotion of love that you felt the first time you held the baby is a little bit hard to draw on at 2 a.m., when you're up for the third time cleaning up a mess, or you're turning red with embarrassment at your child's brutal honesty with a stranger, or you're tired of hearing your seven-year-old complain about how good he has it. Um, There's a difference in feeling love and choosing love. Loving your husband and loving your children sets the tone for everything, and the ask here is probably the most radical of all of them. Our model for love is Christ. 1 John 3.16 tells us this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We could spend an entire sermon series trying to wrap our mind around love, and in fact, we're going to talk about it extensively next week. But for our purposes today, I think this is a pretty good definition. To love is to give my life for yours. Every other aspect of motherhood flows from this, and I would say that it isn't natural. It's natural to feel an emotion of love, but it's not natural to daily give of yourself in this capacity. Mothers, you honor God when you prioritize your husband and children above yourselves. You glorify God when the world sees you give your life for theirs, but it is a really difficult thing to do. You know, it's interesting that both persons are grouped together here. Your children are best loved when you love your husband. Your husband is best loved when you love your children. And to give yourself to one without the other throws the family out of balance. Motherhood doesn't happen in the vacuum of a mother-child relationship. It happens in the broader context of the family. And that's how God is most glorified. So where does this land our mothers who are raising children without a husband? I think you would collectively agree with me that it places you in a less than ideal spot, but it puts you in a place where God's grace can be put to work. I will say this, the directive to love is still in place. As a Christian in general, and specifically as a woman and mother, we never get to be the center of our own existence. Our focus and attention is always outward. So genuine selfless love is the foundation for all of this. Paul then highlights another pair of highly connected attitudes, self-control and purity. These are the only internally focused attitudes that, or commands that Paul gives in this passage, and they're sandwiched between externally focused ones. And I think we see here Paul is recognizing something key. If the internals aren't right, even when the externals look right, they won't be right. Proverbs 4.23 reads like this, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it everything, for everything you do flows from it. Jesus chastised the Pharisees for looking clean on the outside, but being filthy on the inside in Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to use an illustration that I think most of our Uh, mothers can relate to well, probably everyone. I think every child in the history of mankind has attempted this trick. The guests are coming over, hey, the deadline has been set, and the house has to be cleaned, and your room is the last pace left that has to be done. And so you walk in, and you're looking at the time, and you're looking at the mess that you made with your siblings, and then you notice, there it is, under the bed, this perfectly hidden, dark cavity where you can lift up the bed skirt and cover it down, And no one would know, not even your mother. And so you take all of the toys and you cram them under the bed. 
and you call your mother in for the record time room cleaning. And what does she do? She walks, looks at her watch and says, no way that was possible, and walks up to the edge of the bed and looks, and sure enough, your room's not clean and you have to start over. In the moment, the shortcut seems so harmless, um, it seems like it's not going to hurt anything, but the truth is, you didn't accomplish the task that you were asked to do. Without self-control and purity, the covenant of marriage, the safety of the home, the support of a spouse quickly crumbles. We can hide a lot of things from the world around us. It is really hard to hide ourselves from our spouse and our children. Self-control was to be taught to the old and young men as well in our passage, but purity was unique to the women. And I wonder why. Were the men not expected to be pure? I think elsewhere in Scripture, we definitely see purity was an expectation for all believers. Paul used the same word in 1 Timothy 5.22 when he told Timothy to be pure. So that's not the case. So why was this directive given to the young women alone in this passage? Could it be that the purity of the mother in the home is more prominently displayed and influential because of her role as a mother? I want to take you quickly to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. It reads, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In this passage, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he's talking to him about being persecuted, and he calls him to lean on two things when he is struggling. When Timothy is thinking about quitting, when times are tough, when he's questioning himself, what's he supposed to lean on? What he learned and believed, and whom he learned it from. Who was this? It was his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, we read in chapter 1, verse 5. In fact, we learn in the book of Acts that Timothy's father wasn't a believer. Paul pointed Timothy back to Scripture, back to the things that he learned, and back to the character and example of his mother. Our mothers impact us by what they teach us. They impact us by how they love us, but they also impact us by who they are. Motherhood puts your private self on display on a regular and daily basis. Not only can you never use the toilet alone as a mother, but your internal self receives no privacy. For this reason, Paul calls for the development of self-control and purity, because your purity has a profound impact on your family. We're all exposed to those closest to us in a much more intimate way, but I think the impact of the internal self of our mothers has the strongest influence. Which brings us to the next phrase, working at home. A month or so ago, we were finishing up dinner, and out of the blue, Braxton, who is our seven-year-old son, decides to make a special announcement. <clears throat> he kind of pops up and he says, I am so glad I get to be a dad and not a mom. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm glad for that too, but I, I mean, I'm thinking, what's coming next? I, and so I, I almost just shut it down, like, nope, whatever you're about to say cannot be good. You keep your mouth shut. Um, and for some reason, I asked the really dangerous question, oh, son, so why do you say that? And, and he answers, um, moms have to work too hard. 
Now, I'm not going to lie. My first inclination was to stick up for myself a little bit. I work hard, too. But Brianna, Brianna, Brianna was quick to step in and defend me, which I appreciated. But she didn't need to. Braxton was right. She has a job that is really hard work. And he's often there with her on the front lines watching what she does. We've decided in our family to take a more traditional approach to parenting where she works at home and I work out of the home. She doesn't stay home with the kids. She works at home with the kids, and she works really, really hard. Working in the home is real work. It's important work. It's not less than. It's not a compromise, and we should never, in the name of gender equality, make any family feel less than because they've chosen that pathway. I believe that is a path that glorifies God. But for many of you, the phrase working at home makes you cringe a little. There's a lot of our women today who are working outside of the home. For some of you, it's a little off-putting, and your first inclination when you read this verse is going to be to explain it away. There's a lot of you who have chosen to pursue a career because you are talented, and you are really good at it, and you enjoy working. And this verse to you probably feels unfair and a little bit repressive. And there's others of you who read this, and you feel kind of overwhelmed with guilt because you would like to be home, and you don't feel like you can because there are bills to pay. And maybe you need two incomes to make this happen, or maybe you're raising the kids on your own, and this just has to happen. There is no other option. This text is not about women doing the dishes and mopping the floor. Some translations render the phrase busy at home. And I think we get a more complete picture of what Paul was going for when we look at a similar instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. In this passage, he is giving instructions about young widows, And in verse 13, he cautions against the church providing for young widows because, and here's what the text says, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So the principle Paul is guarding against here is idleness. Women are not designed to be pampered, freeloading busybodies. In fact, I would say the best positive example we have comes from Proverbs 31, where we see a wide range of activities done by a godly woman. Let's read it. Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength. And makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. 
Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. I see here the picture of an assertive, active, nurturing mother who works hard, who prioritizes her children and her husband, and is respected by others. There's a, a special attentiveness given to the household, one that a mother is uniquely equipped to give. A, a mother nurtures, a mother teaches, and the biblical examples we have of motherhood, I, I do think, puts her in a special role as the chief manager of the household. Mothers, I, I think you have a special role in the home, I do. And your choice to work outside of the home or not doesn't change this. The special role is most in tune with the influence that we already spoke of. Regardless of your occupation, you're going to have a special relationship with your children and a special influence that you can't escape. Really, I would say the first principle of love speaks more to our careers than anything. The main question we should ask ourselves, all of us, when considering an occupation is this. Can I do this? And love my children and my spouse the way that I'm called to, because that must come first. So this brings us to the final directive we're going to consider, submissive to their own husbands. I mentioned earlier that Paul presumed some things that Titus understood. Paul presumed that Titus was very clear on the fact that we are all to first submit to Christ he isn't telling women to place themselves in a subservient relationship where they can get taken advantage of. He is telling them to set aside themselves and live out marriage as the parable of Christ and his church that we see in Ephesians chapter 5. You see, the church is the bride of Christ, and as the church, we submit to his headship. My passions may pull me in multiple directions, but he is ultimately the point person, and he earned this role when he gave his life for me. Those of you who are Christians should have marriages that mirror this. It's going to be unnatural, especially for our women, but I think it's important. A woman can love her husband, love her children, be self-controlled, pure, busy at home, and kind, but if she dominates the relationship with her husband, she ruins the power of the parable. Not only does she ruin a chance to show the world the relationship Christ has with his church, but she clouds the window through which her children will see this relationship. So this brings us to the question of why. Why love your husband and children like this? Why prioritize purity and work hard at home and be submissive to your husband? Often we do the right things for the wrong reasons. Quite often, we pursue these things for the good of our children. And as noble as that might be, our children really aren't the focus of motherhood. The text wraps up with a broad reminder why. So that the word of God may not be reviled. Yes, each of these things is going to have a tremendous impact on your children. God designed it that way, but you don't do these things primarily for your children. You do them because when you do... You bring glory to God and you demonstrate to the world that his word is true and that it works. The chief purpose of man is to glorify God and motherhood represents a powerful and unique opportunity to do this in a way that a non-mother cannot. The calling of motherhood is ultimately no different 
than the call to singleness or to ministry. In fact, despite our position in life, whether you are a father or a mother or neither one of those, as a Christian, we share the same calling. Several years back, a small group of us went camping in the Davis Mountains, and one night we drove out to see the Marfa Lights. Some of y'all might have gone out to see those. I've heard a lot of people talk about them um, and said that they were pretty clear, but the night that we went to see the Marfa Lights, I don't know, there wasn't much to see. We got out and they said they were supposed to be that way, and we looked and we squinted, and maybe there was something on the horizon. We kind of left disappointed. I never really saw much of anything. But then the next night, we went to the McDonald Observatory that was up in the Davis Mountains, and here we had a really different experience. One by one, we walked around to these massive telescopes, and each one of them was trained on something magnificent. And we would hear about what we were going to see, and then we would step up to this eyepiece, and something would be put on display and revealed to us that had always been there. We didn't put it there, but we were able to see it for the first time. And it was clear, and it was undeniable, and it was beautiful. So often the world looks at Christians, and they've heard about what they should see. But kind of like going to see the Marfa lights, they maybe show up, and they squint, and they look, and they tilt their head, and they're like, huh, and they leave disappointed. But when we live like we are designed, we become telescopes. Telescopes that are pointed directly at the most magnificent thing in the world, a God who loves us. God calls us all to point people to this glorious reality, and our mothers do this. Mothers do this in a very special way. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Motherhood, however, is a powerful form of this calling. Mothers, when you prioritize your husband and your children through your purity, your work ethic, and submissiveness, you put God on display in a beautiful way to your children, to your spouse, and to the entire world. And when God is seen, the world is changed. So thank you, Mom, for letting me have a front row seat to this high calling. Thank you to Brianna, my wife, for her commitment to the biblical motto of motherhood. And thank you to all of our mothers this morning who see this calling as central to their commitment to Christ and pursue it despite what the culture around us says. If you're a mother who has fallen short of the call, let us pray for you and partner with you. As I mentioned earlier, this is not something that comes naturally, but we have a church full of women who have walked in your shoes and they'll help you grow in this. If you are struggling today, let us comfort you. And if you have any needs, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.